0: Hello and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from jewishboston.com. I'm Mary Mansman and I'm joined on this episode by my co-host Dan Seligson and two special guests, our colleagues Kali Foxman and Ashley Jacobs. Team, we've finally done it. We watched the TV series Schnitzel, or as Dan calls it, Schnitzel.
1: Baruch Hashem, I'm so glad we're all here. Schnitzel, Shtitzel, Shtetl, whatever I call it but its own name, which I'm oddly incapable of getting right is a globally popular Israeli export despite having nothing to do with political conflict, terrorism, FAUDAS, or PTSD. That's refreshing. Nice. It has a softness to it, yet it is completely and utterly addictive. It's like Dynasty, Dallas, Family Guy, or This Is Us, but with monochromatic clothing. While the show, produced by the Yes Network in Israel, has been streaming worldwide on Netflix since December, we finally finished the first two seasons. Congratulations, all.
0: Thank you, Thank Todah. Shtisel is about a fictional ultra-Orthodox Haredi family living in the Geula neighborhood in Jerusalem. The series, filmed in Hebrew and Yiddish, focuses in particular on Akiva and Shulem Shtisel, a son and his recently widowed father. Shulem is the principal of a Haredi elementary school for boys. He tries to deal with his grief, but he's also on the lookout for a new spouse. He's caring for his aging mother, Malka, at the same time. Akiva, considered a total screw-up for being unmarried at 27, attempts to find a good match too, but he's struggling with something that sets him apart from his community. He's a gifted artist. That's confusing and distressing to his family and the community.
2: The show also delves into the home life of Akiva's sister Gidi and her family, showing the many challenges Haredi women face and the repercussions of marrying young without really knowing the person you're marrying. We also explore the role of women in this community through the romantic interests of Akiva, who gets engaged three times so far during the course of the
3: show. The Stissel family is part of an internet-free society with rules governing every single aspect of daily life that many non-Haredi people aren't familiar with. But the show demonstrates that, at the end of the day, this Haredi family comprises ordinary people we see the universal struggles of human beings just in a Haredi context. This means that when watching the show, viewers are forced to confront their stereotypes about this group of people. Critics have noted
0: the meticulous detail. One of the show's creators grew up Haredi in Jerusalem, and Stissel employs mashgiachs or supervisors, to ensure that every detail of that way of life is portrayed accurately.
2: In two seasons, the show won a slew of Ophirs, the Israeli Emmys, including for Best Drama and for Best Actor, Best Directing, and Best Script in a Drama Series. And the show has recently been renewed for a third season.
0: Baruch Hashem. Okay, now that we've got the basics out of the way, let's get into our discussion. Just a note for our audience, we will have a few spoilers from seasons one and two of the show, but we'll try to keep some of the plot to ourselves. All right, let's do this. Why do you think this show, a low-budget family drama
3: about a rabbi and his family in Jerusalem, has gained
0: such popularity?
3: I found it really compelling to get a peek into this community with their rituals and traditions. I think viewers can relate to the many universal themes like the pursuit of love and trying to find a partner. I thought it would be a weird show to binge watch, but I got super into it and now I can't wait for more. (laughs) I'll get
2: this out of the way now, I was not a fan of the show. While I can relate, obviously, to the human condition, connection, overwhelming loneliness, struggle, the search for self and personal truth, it did take me at least half of the first season to kind of get into it. The show was slow and depressing, and I couldn't connect with the characters too much. I definitely think it also brought up some stuff for me about being repressed by other people and feeling trapped in your life. Only some of these characters do anything about it, and most who do revert back to old behaviors either by guilt or force.
0: If you take away the kissing of the mezuzah, the constant Baruch Hashems, the focus on prayer and study, this family has recognizable challenges that resonated with me and clearly with many other people who have made this show so unexpectedly popular. The pull between tradition and modernity, between an extremely structured way of life and a more bohemian independent artistic life, these are things that many people in many religions and cultures experience and deal with. But for me, it was more compelling because of that attention to detail with respect to the religious observance. I loved every single Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem,
1: Baruch and Hashem. And you got thousands of them. I you did, literally got thousands I did. Of them. I think what this show also gives us are the primetime TV drama tropes that we need and love. Sibling rivalry, birth, death, weddings, infidelity, all from the standpoint of what many people, especially me, find so very unfamiliar, which is the world of the ultra-Orthodox in Jerusalem. Also Michael Aloney.
0: Yeah, one of the draws of this show, as Dan just noted, is Michael Aloni, who plays Akiva. He's one of the most popular actors in Israel and was nominated for the Israeli Television Academy's Best Actor in a Drama Series. Let's talk about him and his performance, as he really is the center of the story.
1: Well, Baruch Hashem, Michael Ohlone, (laughs) he's completely transformed himself in this role. He has a tremendous range, and to see him torn between his passion for art in a society that doesn't always value it, his mostly fruitless pursuit of a lasting relationship, his endlessly fascinating and incredibly frustrating dynamic with his father. He just gives us a character that is so expertly played.
0: Yeah, my opinion about Michael Alone has been very well documented on this <laughs> podcast has. in the past. And I'll tell you, today, my feelings have not changed. He conveys Akiva's dual identities as religious Jew and artist with spot-on mannerisms. The way he checks that his peyote are curly enough. His hat maneuvers, the way he holds on to his kippah when he tips his head back to drink. They're all great. But he also captures how Akiva looks at the world around him through an artistic lens. There's one scene where he's on a bus and he's remembering his childhood when he was told to always look down at his book so as not to look up and see a immodestly dressed woman to distract him. But Akiva is a person who sees the world even when he's told to look away. He sees it and he translates it onto his canvas. I loved the different dimensions the actor brought to this character.
3: Yeah, I really felt for him as a character. His struggle felt so genuine to me. He wants a partner, but doesn't want to sacrifice who he is. He just doesn't want to settle. He wants to find someone who brings out the best in him, who won't flinch at his creative pursuits, which I think is what we all want. We all want that. (laughs) That's difficult for him in this community. He's branded as a screw up, a problem child, which only made me feel more compassionate toward him and his struggles. I mean, who wants to be labeled like that?
2: Exactly. At least he doesn't stand for that at the end of season two. Despite all the objections and insults he gets from pretty much everyone on the show, he always
0: finds a way to go back to his art. He's the only character who constantly evolves. In addition to Michael, there are so many outstanding performances on this show. It's a great ensemble cast. Let's talk about who stands out and really made an impression. For me, Netta Riskin as Giti and Shira Haas as her daughter Ruchami are amazing hands down the best. Shira plays Ruchami perfectly. I totally believe her teenage rage and rebellion and experience of first love. She's a gem. And Netta as Giti for me is the most powerful performance on the show. As a woman in this life who's simultaneously strong in the face of being abandoned by her husband in season 1 yet when he returns she's willfully dismissive of a narrative that disrupts her life she hates to be controlled and powerless and she channels that into
3: both moments of
0: fierce action and moments of self-destruction
3: well said Miriam I agree wholeheartedly for me without a doubt it's Gidi too she's a strong smart woman who has shown her vulnerability throughout she has tried to stay true to herself throughout the series which I have found at times to be extremely poignant yeah And I know this might be kind of controversial, but I also kind of love Manuka, who becomes Shulam's fiance and a matchmaker. I fully stand her. (laughs) She knows what she wants. She isn't afraid to say it. She's like, I'm a widow. You're a widow. Let's get this show on the road. Let's get engaged. Yes, she did some awful things, but there was something about her that I just really got into. I agree with what You've said about Gidi, but for
2: me, there's something special about Saurel Pitterman, the guy who plays her brother, Zvi Arya. It takes dedication to portray someone so down on his luck. He tries, but keeps failing. Like the time he bought a mouse to capture so his wife would stop nagging him about there being a mouse in the house that he could never find. He intended to return it to the pet store, but it died while he was studying for a promotion he got passed over for. Again, plus he can really sing.
3: I really feel for that man And I really thought that he just... Um, flushed the mouse down the I toilet. did too. Like, I, I thought didn't, he murdered didn't that mouse. It didn't occur to me that it died in the bag. So I was kind of relieved to hear you say that. Yeah. I now. was like, how could you? <laughs> I know. It's like, it makes more sense that the mouse had died. It kind of does. Yeah. I
0: thought he was like taking out his rage on the mouse. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he had it in a bag. He had it in the cage in a bag next to him, but the mm-hmm. bag was, the plastic bag was folded over. Mm-hmm. So no one oh, could God. tell that it was the mouse and he would check on it and it was alive. And then he went to check on it at the end and
0: it, it was downer. downer.
1: Downer. Mm. Yeah. I would say that one of my favorite performances is the epic schmuck Lippy, Kitty's mm. husband, Boo. played by Zohar Strauss. I know, he's a schmuck. I'm, I'm opening with that. He totally is. <laughs> he has this incredible ability to go from menacing to pathetic to empathetic to playful. It's a really complex role. He's a conflicted man who makes terrible choices and does not know how to redeem himself. Mm-hmm. And while he's a man of a certain age, okay, my age. (laughs) You look younger. (laughs) I look younger. Uh, This actor's only appeared on screen four times in his career, all for Israeli domestic films. And I'm going to say that Zohar is a diamond in the rough. I'm glad to see him in a premium cable level show, or whatever you call it when it's hot on Netflix, nailing this extremely difficult character.
0: In the show, dreams and visions of the dead and the afterlife are key plot points and play into the stories of many characters, including Shulam, Akiva, Elisheva, and Babi Malka. What do we think about this aspect of the show?
2: I love dreams. According to Freud of Blessed Memory, dreams reveal our fears and our desires as told by the residue of our day. My favorite dream in the show was one of Akiva's because it inspired action. His mother, Devora, is sewing his initials onto a tallit bag but can't remember his name. He wakes up and realizes he lost his sense of self. He's all, screw it, I want to paint again and actually get credit for my work. From this dream also comes a poignant and meaningful portrait that's supposed to be the centerpiece of his art show.
0: Many of the characters have dreams or vivid imaginary conversations with dead loved ones from the very first scene of the show— Sometimes these scenes are used comically, like when Shulam has a dream of the afterlife, and it turns out that everyone just keeps having heart attacks, but no one dies. And some are actually very moving and result in the characters making big decisions in their waking lives. The show feels like it's an ongoing investigation into the nature of these relationships in both life and death. We see this particularly with Sheva, Akiva's season one love interest, who has conversations with her two dead husbands around the kitchen table. She talks to them about the merits of marrying Akiva versus not wanting to be a wife for the third time. So death is a major part of the show, and I like that, because that's life, and that's very Jewish.
3: Yeah, dreams are a way to process real life. In the show, I feel like it really helps us understand how each character is grieving and what the loss represents to them.
1: And it also, frankly, it helps me better process the mindset of the ultra-religious, and it makes all kind of sense to me that people for whom faith is so central and family is everything are just so focused on what happens to their relatives after they're gone, And the visions and dreams involving learning lessons from the dead just seem to follow naturally.
0: Family is everything on this show. And this show is powered by family conflict. Let's talk about that. I
2: wanted nothing more than to punch Shulam in the face. He sabotages everything and everyone. The only person to whom he's loyal is himself, not family. Okay, so to be fair and give credit where credit is due, he does have one nice parenting moment each season with Giti, the only daughter who seems to matter. In season one, he offers Giti money. He fought the bank to withdraw when Lipe is gone so she won't have to run a sketchy home business. In season two, he tries several times to talk to her about how unhappy she is since her son Zalegs Briss. But other than that, nothing.
0: I feel like Shulam tries to be like a good teacher. He's well-meaning in his teaching to his students, but that stands out so brightly in comparison to how downright horrific he is as a parent. The scene where he brings up a light-up model of a solar system to the yeshiva and explains an upcoming solar eclipse is especially beautiful in highlighting this good and caring side. But he is the problem in the family, and his behavior has informed All of their personal issues. Akiva's feelings of failure and lack of appreciation for his art. Giti's feelings of pride and refusal to deal with her marital crisis. Ruchami's teen marriage. Svi Arya's complete nebbishness in the face of his own squandered musical talent. The catalyst for all of this is Shulam. Shulam actually has a daughter who isn't Giti, who only appears in like two episodes, because he's so embarrassed by her because she's part of the Lubavitch Hasidic movement. He wants, quote, father and educator, unquote, on his tombstone. But only one of those things is he even slightly good at. And we see with his relationship with his brother Nachum in season two, that both of them are cut from the same cloth in terms of being the worst. How Malka got these two sons is truly beyond me, because she's great. Poor poor Malka. Poor Malka. Mm. She deserves better.
1: Mm. Yeah, Shulam drives me bats. He is so incredibly contradictory. He's certain that he's right, yet so easily swayed by the slightest suggestion. He's petty with his brother and often with his children, who he bosses around relentlessly. He acts as if he's humble, yet shows an appalling lack of humility. I guess he's a typical patriarch. Just kidding, Dad.
3: Shulam is complicated, clearly, but I do believe he loves his children and grandchildren. He doesn't always know how to show it, but it's mentioned a handful of times in the show that he's paying six mortgages for members of his family. I think that's one way he demonstrates his love and fatherly duties. He also cares for his mother. He vacillates between being tender and supportive of his family and being domineering and making them feel absolutely horrible. Yeah.
0: I was particularly taken uh, with the meta-commentary about the role of television in this show. How did you feel about that approach to storytelling?
3: Oh my god, I loved how addicted Malka became to her soap operas and how Shulam discovered she would pray for the characters as if they were her own family. It's really cute. And how she actually ends up in the hospital is just so sad and yet kind of humorous. She tried to give up her soaps but couldn't. I can relate. Yeah, I mean, truly, who
0: amongst us who is devoted to a TV show hasn't felt the same at some point? I did a ton of praying during Game of Thrones, and I am an atheist. No, it did not. I was obsessed with Malka and her soap operas. At the end of season one, Malka is in the hospital, as you mentioned, hovering between life and death, and we see her watching her grieving, concerned family on a television in the afterlife with her dead husband, and she is thinking whether she'll return to them or stay in heaven. That television afterlife moment
2: was so perfect for her. One of my favorite other TV moments, though, is when Malka goes to Shoshana's bedside As her friend commits suicide, they watch the news together. Another cool moment is when Malka takes it into her own hands to go to the beach in Tel Aviv. She wants to see it in person and not on a screen. And she
3: does. Good for her.
1: You know, I love the way TV, popular culture, and technology seem to seep their way into the show when Shulam leaves the PA system running at school while he's listening (laughs) to a radio show when Kivé seems to speak directly to Live through the TV during his news interview. And of course, this show taking place in 2013, we see the encroaching influence of technology. And by the end of season two, I see more religious people looking at their phones. I see smartphones. Mm-hmm. And who can forget that moment when Kivé's former classmates are playing a first-person shooter at Anshin's Sounding like a bunch of teenagers playing Fortnite and drinking Mountain Dew Baja Blast.
3: <laughs> with, with knishes. Yeah, knishes yeah. and cold kugel. That's
0: right. And swearing and yeah. being racist yeah. and
1: awful.
0: There are some issues there. Mm-hmm. The themes of conformity versus rebellion are very important in this show. What stood out about these competing dynamics?
2: Well, to tie this into what we just discussed, Akiva himself goes on TV Doing so is a huge step for him, his career, and his community. Akiva the artist is never externally represented as rebellious. In fact, Kaufman, his gallery owner, is tremendous in celebrating and honoring his identity and encourages him to do the same. Hence the TV interview. Akiva is finally owning himself. He can be both a Jew and an artist. It's not rebellion if you live and honor your truths, right? Shulam, who was just starting to maybe, maybe accept Akiva the artist, blasts him into next week for going on air and disgracing their family and the community. It also makes me wonder how the Orthodox
3: community feels about Stissel in general.
0: Well, there's many Orthodox communities, and I imagine they all feel slightly different.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. What really touched me was Akiva's struggle. He didn't intend to make his life more difficult by being an artist. That much is clear to me. I can see that he just wants to be, in a sense, normal. But his desire to create can't be buried despite his best efforts. He isn't trying to rebel. He's just trying to stay true to himself, which in his case is a rebellion in itself in this community. And Giti's husband, Lippi, also rebels in Argentina. We learn he has shaved his beard and cut his payout. Kitty wants him to return, but tells him to wait until his hair grows back. Rogaine. And miraculously, it grows back very quickly. <laughs> They're like uh-huh. Rogaine for... Um, yes, there's payout. Ro- yeah. okay. And curlers. Uh, yeah. Um, and when he finally returns, he ends up telling his angry eldest daughter, that getting married and having kids so young made him feel trapped. He says his desire was to be anonymous, to miss no one, and to have no one miss him. We never get the full story of what happened in Argentina, the extent of this rebellion. And even though the details might not be relevant anymore, I personally still want to know what happened there. It was rumored that he ran off with a shiksa, a disparaging term for a non-Jew, He quit the slaughterhouse that he was working for, but we don't really know what he was doing there. It was
0: something sketchy. There are other forms of rebellion that we see. We see self-harm tendencies in the characters of Giti, Rukhami, and Hanina, which were hard to watch, but made sense in the context of the story as a way of exerting some form of control. That's why people self-harm. Hanina uses it uh, to keep himself awake during studying. Giti and Rukhami turn to it when the world seems totally against them. Later, Rukhami takes her head covering seriously in her child marriage, which is a kind of rebellion against Giti herself, who thinks this child marriage is ridiculous, even though Rukhami got married in the first place, so Giti would have the option of getting a divorce. The irony. And not worrying about setting her daughter up in her own marriage. Exactly. Akiva's whole existence as a 27-year-old single man, the horror, and his love of art, the Lubavitch daughter being Lubavitch and marrying a Sephardic man, that's totally rebellious in this context.
1: I also think in this context, there's sort of a, there's rebellion and then there's coping. And I see Kive is finding this way to cope. Mm. And he's something of a nonconformist for sure. But you have to wonder in this social structure, whether fully conforming to what is expected of you is even possible. Uh, the most pious, straight and narrow character on the show, in my opinion, Hanina, won't honor his father. He shut him out of his life for the sin of finding a new partner after his wife died. mm
0: out here. I loved the artistic aspects of this show. What did you think of the way being an artist or a creative person is portrayed here? And what is the importance of art in this narrative?
1: So Akiva makes this decision to pursue something that's unrelated to Torah and Talmud study from these hidden notebooks where Akiva draws sketches of animals to making a terrible deal with a scam artist to paint pictures that will be credited to someone else. Art is naughty. It's hidden, and when it emerges out in the open, we see the division that it's causing between the father and son and the rest of the family, yet it becomes recognized eventually as one of his Hashem-given gifts.
3: And Miriam, as the resident artist, someone with a God-given gift (laughs) for art, did you find the art aspect realistic? Did you think Michael Ohlone had a paint double? Did we actually like his art? Is
0: it good? If Michael Ohlone really painted all those paintings, I will eat my very, very expensive bandolino hat. But yeah, I do think the art is good, although he seems to progress very fast from somebody who never did this to being like an expert Rembrandt-level painter. Mm. The final painting of him and his mother is especially good. Akiva's first successful paintings, or most successful paintings, show people at the fringes of the society or at somehow people who are at odds with the community. Elisheva, the boy with the goldfish who may or may not be a hallucination, and even the painting of his own mother, because it shows her with her hair partially uncovered. For those who might not be familiar with this concept, women in Orthodox Jewish communities usually cover their hair with a special scarf or hat or wig, So showing her hair in this painting was very transgressive. And yet, art on the show has its own kind of holiness. This one time Akiva sleeps in his studio, but Kaufman, who we mentioned uh, runs the gallery and represents Akiva, tells him not to sleep there, just like he wouldn't sleep in a shul. The space must be treated with reverence. And to be honest, I'm jealous that Akiva has artist representation. I want to be Akiva. That's my deep, dark secret of the show. (laughs)
3: I thought it was really touching, actually, that Kaufman was saying like that art and the space that you created yeah. is sacred, so you don't yeah. treat it just like as a place you're going to sleep.
2: Exactly. It was a really great way to make a connection with Akiva. Music, for me, though, really stood out, especially when Zviaria crushes it during his wedding singer audition. It brings life and vigor to the show. But then he gives it up, partly so that his wife, who wouldn't even give him a kidney, won't fall asleep on the
0: couch all alone. Yeah, the importance of relationships is so huge. What are the most meaningful, funny, or enigmatic interpersonal dynamics that we see on the show?
1: I don't know if this is going to rank as a superlative like that, but the relationship between Zvi Arya and his wife, Tovi, takes a turn for the better when he finally finds himself through music. He sings for her, and Tovi clearly finds it irresistible. For example, she says, Time for Veds V, Ari. It's getting late. Winky, <laughs> Wink. winky. But, you know, Get it, girl. That scene was adorable, and those two absolutely needed a spark of the divine and possibly what happened after that departure from the living room. Yeah,
0: that was pretty cute. Good for them.
3: I liked watching how Ruchami's relationship with her father evolved over the series. I think despite her anger toward him, they do have a really unique bond. And of course, Malka and Shoshana. The only time I actually cried during the series was when Malka joined her friend as she was dying. I found that entire scene incredibly moving.
0: Yeah. For me, the most important relationship is Giti and Ruchami. The most humorous is is the frenemy bubbies, Malka and Ribbits and Um Shoshana. Puppies, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and the most enigmatic is Elie because has she seen Michael Aloney? Like, what is her problem? Oh, and we
3: didn't really talk about the potty mouth on um, Shoshana. Oh, we <laughs> did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah
0: she says that one. An incredibly she? judgy person yeah. for other people, mm-hmm. but maybe not for herself so much. Right.
2: Yeah. I agree with all of these, especially Rukhami's relationship with her father in the second season. That one made me smile.
0: The way this community uses dating for immediate marriage is fascinating and very different from what many folks might be familiar with. What did you observe about the way dating is portrayed in this community?
2: For me, I really admired their brazen approach to finding spouses, Straight-up questions with everything on the table. It seems like hopes for a similar future, not love, dictate success. It's obviously different from how we look at relationships and dating, although there are some of what we would call dates. Libby and Akiva go ice skating, for example, and there's that scandalous confession that Lipe told Ruhami, about how he would teach Giti how to drive when they were younger.
3: Yeah, I find the whole thing pretty logical when you paint it out like that. Um, But many times it's like 9 p.m. That's when all these hotel dates are taking place. And I'm just wondering, why not afternoon coffee meetings? (laughs) That is a good
0: question. Maybe they time it then to avoid running into conflicts with Mincha, the afternoon prayer. Uh. So many lobby hotel meetings. So little time.
3: I found myself really intrigued by this idea of matchmaking and meetings and families then very quickly deciding whether to go through with it. It's like there's a rush, but also not a rush because they are trying to find the right match, or I should say right enough, because they do still have choices. They can say yes or no. In the end, how can anyone ever tell what's going to be forever? I think it's brave to just take the leap and make it work as they do. And one thing I keep remembering is when Nachum told Shulam that Jewish law says it's better to get married and divorced than to call off an engagement. If that is true, that is wild to me. I
1: would not take any advice from that guy ever, ever. To
0: be fair, we do hear that being refuted by Akiva. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. This community is insular, but aware of other communities and the world around them. The schtisels seem to have a negative take on everyone from Hasidim to Zionists to anybody who isn't in their particular sect. Let's talk about how they view the rest of the
1: world. I think there is an acknowledgement that they are on the same planet, but they live in completely different worlds. And secular Jews, Gentiles, evil people are mentioned in the abstract. They have their uses. They can run animal shelters, for example. They can drive taxis, wait on tables fly airplanes, fund an art competition, and so forth. But generally, they don't mix these two groups.
0: Yeah, I think that important. Uh, one important part of this is the recognition that not all Jews in black hats are from the same groups or have the same ways to practice Judaism. Shula makes many disparaging remarks about Hasidim in particular from the very first episode on, including about his daughter, who's Lubavitch, gasp, and he like, cut her out of his life because of that. But Nachum really is the worst offender on this offensive scale.
3: Yeah, he's constantly talking about those damn evil people. And to be honest, I wasn't exactly sure who he was referring to. I mean, does
0: he even know? I'm pretty sure he just means anyone who isn't helpful to him or gets in his way. So he hates. He also hates laws that prevent him from doing what he wants to do. So that means that he hates the state of Israel, banks, the country of Belgium.
3: We don't even know what he's doing there. We don't by the know way, what he's doing something <laughs> sketchy.
0: Also, he himself, though, I have to say, is like the worst stereotype on this show. If this show wasn't made by Jews, I would be irate. I would be on Twitter mm-hmm. complaining about this, um, about Nahum. And maybe maybe I should. I don't know. Maybe I still am upset.
2: Nahum is the worst, for sure. I think this community is portrayed as having negative views toward anyone who isn't like how they're supposed to be in general. For example, a teacher was fired at Shulim's school for teaching something secular Even though Shulam led a lesson on the solar system that captivated his students, hypocrite, one of the things that makes Gidi finally accept Hanina is his dedication to his religion. And after Akiva breaks off his first engagement, his father goes off about how Akiva can do whatever he wants now because he's already an embarrassment. This, of course,
0: changes, and Shulam is once again a hypocrite.
1: Also, that would be so liberating. Right.
0: Can you imagine if you really hadn't cared the rest of the show? What I now. Mm.
1: I want someone to say this to me so I can just do whatever the oh hell I want for the rest of my life.
0: All right. Let's talk about our favorite moments. When Malka calls Manuha a krafta.
3: And what does that mean again? I, I forgot to Google it. There are mixed
2: reports. Some sources say bitch. Others that it's like bitch, but worse, you can use your imagination. Okay. Got it.
1: I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go back to season one. <laughs> I loved the first date between Akiva and Elishiva, of blessed memories. turned to the show anyway. <laughs> it was playful. It was kind of tense. I felt like I was there with them. And just to see them so into each other, it was they were simmering on the screen, sitting five feet away from I each know.
0: other. <laughs> oh, I know. Mm. Mine was when Giti is almost robbed in her house by a desperate intruder with a knife, but she channels all of her rage and actually throws him out of her house. I also loved when Ruchami imagines shooting her father in a Western-style gunfight. It's also super funny when the art crowd are all coming up to Akiva at his gallery opening and saying, oh, how they used to be religious or their parents were because they fawningly want to have a small slice of his experience and authenticity, but without the commitment.
3: I loved when Lippy said that Giti could decide how to spend their savings. I mean, as she should, that woman has been through hell. And I love that she replaced Anshin's restaurant with one of her own.
0: Finally, something going right for
3: Yes,
2: But where will the boys go to play
0: their Fortnite games?
2: Like
1: Somebody's think it's somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> Marijuana <laughs> clouded yeah. basement.
3: Plus it just seems like her cooking is way better than Anshin. Absolutely.
1: I was just microwaving cigarette. kugels. <laughs> and yeah. He's got a cigarette hanging out of his mouth while Maybe he's cooking. Maybe that flavor. I don't
0: know. Okay. Most moving moments.
1: Well, it's been mentioned before, but when Malka sits on the bed with Shoshana as she's dying and because I was trying to catch up so quickly, I watched it at work. There was something in my eye, or both eyes, but luckily I have this new standing desk situation <laughs> with these two monitors that fully mask my face. So if I need to get something out emotionally, I can do such a thing.
0: Like a mechitza. Google it. When my fa- Okay, my favorite is when Ruchami writes letters to her brothers, impersonating her father, because he's obviously not there, to help them with their personal issues. So she writes letters with advice to them. It's what their father should have done, but Ruhami is the one who stepped up.
3: Yeah, she's an incredible big sister, and her advice was pretty damn good. Wasn't yeah, she's it? good. Mm-hmm. I would write to her if she had a column. Yeah. <laughs> I also liked the letter writing between her and Hanina. They are able to be very vulnerable with each other in those moments. They are so young, and yet they demonstrate this extreme trust in each other. I do feel kind of uncomfortable romanticizing their 15 year old love story, but it is really sweet.
1: They are very cute. How old were Romeo and Juliet? 14. Oh, so actually this is fine. This This is fine. fine.
0: (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, when Ali Sheva took off her wig to show Akiva that she has some gray hair, she means to show him how much more life she's lived than him and that they'd be incompatible because of their age difference. But he sees her as beautiful and it's a very intimate moment for them, especially considering that uncovered hair on a woman is supposed to be a very sexual thing.
2: For me, it was... During that terrible scene when Libby goes to Kaufman about why Akiva shouldn't paint anymore, Libby's telling him about Nahum, her father, whom we all hate, and how he, plot twist, loves listening to Mahler's Fifth Symphony, an agonizing and heartbreaking composition that actually begins with a funeral march. I've heard it in some of Mahler's other works performed, and you feel every single emotion in the world. Libby tells Kaufman that one day he recorded silence over it because it took away from his religion. Nahum had art, but he rejected it. At the end of their conversation, instead of the dull background score that plagued my viewing since episode one, Mahler's Fifth starts to play, as Akiva is literally shredding the house he drew for his and Libby's wedding invitation, and everyone is staring off into nothing alone, including the evil Nahum. But what really elevated this for me even more was the incredible significance of the show's choice of composer. Gustav Mahler was actually born Jewish, but had to convert to Catholicism because he couldn't get jobs since he was a Jew. It was all very poignant.
0: That's sad. Speaking of, what are the saddest moments?
2: Uh, Shulam and Akiva's sad sandwiches. (laughs) Pickles and cheese and tomatoes and mayo. I think it sounds good. On a more serious note... Malka makes me both smile and breaks my heart. Yeah. Remember when she wanted an anniversary party for her and her late husband and everyone she asked said no except for Giti, Or when Zvi Arya doesn't know how to turn her TV off? That brings her so much joy and he ends up ripping the cable out of the wall. So sad. I know. When Malka sees that static and just the look on her face, it was such a knife in the heart. This is
0: my worst fear. Yeah. This is what hell looks like for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was hard for me to see when Giti intentionally burns herself with the iron. I gasped out loud. Akiva taking Shulam to his art show and Shulam hijacking it to raise money for the yeshiva, I actually covered my face. It was so hard to watch that. And I
3: didn't even see that coming to be honest, so I was Yeah, I was like oh my god, is Shulam going to do a good
2: thing? Mm -hmm. (laughs) No. No, No, I I had a feeling when he got up to say something I I knew it. I just knew.
0: Yeah, and later Shulam actually purchases Akiva's most meaningful work, the symbolic representation of him and his mother. Shulam paints over the exposed hair. That was excruciating, but he's he's torn between, this is a beautiful painting, and oh, my wife is being displayed in a way that our community sees as immodest. It was so painful.
3: Yes, and when Shulam is willing to give up his cemetery plot in order to buy that painting, that was really sad. Yeah, He felt so strongly about it that he was willing to give up his resting place between his late wife and his mother, something he had talked about many times yeah. before, and he can never get that back.
0: But it was worth it to destroy that painting.
3: Yeah, for him. Yeah. All right. What are some
0: moments that surprised or delighted you? You didn't see coming at all. For me, it was when Getty busts out the accordion and she's great.
3: She's got talent. Yep. Watching Zvi Arya struggle with the fact that his wife said she wouldn't donate her kidney to him if he needed one. He was very torn up about that. He was very affected and he wouldn't let it go. But it is kind of crappy that he lied to her about being sick in the first place. Yeah. I was also surprised when Giti attacked the woman in the clothing store. We knew she was angry, but until then had really buried her feelings. Her anger came out in this violent outburst toward a woman she referred to as a shiksa. I was also surprised when Giti became pregnant again, mainly because I didn't think she and Lippi had been intimate because she was so angry with him. And she almost went through with an abortion. The fact that she was alone was heartbreaking to me.
0: Yeah, that was super intense. It was also an interesting and eye-opening view into the process of accessing abortion in Israel, at least for me.
2: Yeah. Same for me. I agree about the way abortion was portrayed in the show when Giti's sitting in front of a panel of I think three or four people and all but one of whom is a man and the woman is talking to her about how this is her decision and her choice and is keeping the men at the table in check who are trying to talk her out of it. That was very powerful and surprising for me, but of course have to go back to my buddy Zviaria singing getting up there just rocking it so good
1: it was beautiful for me it was pets there were 24 (laughs) episodes and four animals we had a mouse parrot dog what was the goldfish and the famous goldfish it was refreshing to see a parrot and a dog make these surprise appearances (laughs) but nobody knew what the hell to do with them to me they were like Mrs. Mazel's children. <laughs> they tended to just vanish into thin air once they were inconvenient to the story, but I miss them and I want to know what became of them.
3: Who opened the door opened that let the, the dog out? Will we ever know that? It's a great question. And where is the parent? We I thought know. the
1: dog was tied to the doorknob with a leash, but did he give up the leash eventually and let even the dog sure. wander? This out? part is
0: really painful for me yeah. to think about. So let's not not go down that road. (laughs) Instead, let's describe the part of the show that confused us the most.
3: Well, Akiva's friend who checked himself into a mental health facility really confused me. We never learned why he had never met his mom, which in the context of this community seems a little um, unusual and the feelings he was dealing with around that. I'm wondering what happened to him. Is he okay? Did he ever see his mom again? Also, when Shulam entertained the idea of marrying the woman from the train, that was pretty surprising. And also the whole money exchange business that Shoshana was running out of the nursing home and then Giti from her home. I was just wondering, like... How, how they were doing that. Why didn't people use a bank? Like what was in it for them and these people? That yeah. confused me. Yeah. For me, the most
0: confusing was the character of Akiva's cousin fiance, Libby. At first, she seems fun, ironic, chill, a person who can both make and take a joke and yet still be religious. On the other hand, she demands Akiva totally give up painting and get a desk job if he wants to marry her. And that is unforgivable for me. As an artist myself, I just lost my page loans with her.
2: For me, there are a couple of things. But somewhere in season one, Shulam kicks Akiva out and Akiva's trying to find a place to stay. So he goes to the basement of a shul, I think. And his friends are referring to a golem who turns out to be this guy named Oscar or Oliver or something. Oliver. Oliver, yeah, and they have a really fun night playing cards, Oliver's there, he's Skyping with his dad and then someone comes in and it's Akiva and they just spend Shabbat together and it's really fun and camaraderies abound and then Sholem just shows up and takes Akiva home but we never hear what happened to Oliver ever again. I thought he'd be a really fun character. Um, going back to Zviaria and Tovi, how did they reconcile after she said she wouldn't give him a kidney? Because that really, really made him distraught. And for Lippi, I thought he was miserable and hated his life. But then he's all of a sudden seemingly happy and content in season two.
1: I was perplexed by the Goldfish Boy. This was the only time in the show that there was a hallucination a waking dream, and not a dream sequence. And I was as confused as Kivi.
0: I think the goldfish was Eliyahu Hanavi. Google it. Okay, let's That's end. That's the second
1: thing I've been assigned to Google, Rabbi, but <laughs> well, I will do Well, I wasn't
0: it. assigning you.
3: Just anyone who's interested can check it out. Okay, let's end with our hopes for season three. My hope is that Akiva finds artistic and romantic fulfillment. He has yearnings for both, and I hope he won't have to sacrifice either. Amen. I just hope that Shulam finds that puppy.
0: Amen. Hashem. I hope that Libby Weiss gets murdered by that parrot. And I do find it a little odd how there's no mention of mikvah pretty much in the show. Um, So I'm interested to see if ritual immersion within marriage is something that gets explored in the future, maybe in like 10 years when Ruchami and her husband are finally really married, Mm -hmm. 10 to 20 years Mm -hmm. in the future.
1: Speaking of those two, I really hope that couple does not have a child yet and they wait at least, you know, until they'd be the equivalent of seniors in high school to consider procreating. (laughs) Is that too much to ask? No. God willing, they will be smart. Mm-hmm.
3: All right,
0: everybody. These are great points. I want to say thank you for putting in the time to binge and joining this discussion. Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. Listeners, follow us on at Jewish Boston on social media and subscribe to the Vibe of the Tribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or TuneIn. You can also email us at podcast at jewishboston.com with your comments, feedback, and ideas for future topics and guests. Thanks, as always, to our editor, Jesse, and our composer, Ryan, and a special thank you to Netflix.